Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting to Associate Professor Daryl Jones. Daryl is an intensive care specialist at Melbourne's Austin Health and is an advisor to the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. Daryl, historically speaking, what do we know about in-hospital cardiac arrest? How common is it and what are the outcomes like? So um, there's a relatively limited high-quality data from Australia, but um, Gerard Finnessy actually did a systematic review a couple of years ago. Depends on the type of study you look at, but the vast majority of studies suggest that the frequency or the incidence is more than one per thousand, so rough, uh, roughly one every 1,000 multi-stay admissions. Depends a bit on the type of study you look at, but it can be up to six per thousand. Um, most of those patients, um, the vast majority, don't have a witness arrest, and they um, usually are not in a shockable rhythm, which um, we can chat about a bit later, has implications for ALS and BLS training, I think. Um, and historically, at least, the outcomes have been very poor. So survivals have typically been in the order of 20% or below. Um, that reflects the types of patients that are having cardiac arrests historically um, and also the, the fact that the, a lot of the arrests were not witnessed and didn't have shockable rhythms. So all of those factors are associated with unfavourable outcomes. Now, they're obviously a, a significantly different population to what we would see in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, aren't they? What sort of um, pathologies are involved within hospital cardiac arrest? So surprisingly, that's been relatively under-investigated. There's been a couple of studies looking at um, the types of patients who have arrests. Um, we, I was involved in one at the Austin, and we found that a substantial proportion didn't come in with cardiovascular disease, that they came in with orthopedic or respiratory or neurological diseases, and that they had a, a cardiac arrest in the context of their illness, which may not have been related necessarily to an underlying cardiac pathology. Um, it's said that the vast majority of arrests that occur out of hospital are relatively sudden and often unexpected and, and they relate to primary cardiac pathology, so ventricular dysrhythmias or cardiovascular catastrophes, you know, aortic rupture, pulmonary embolism and the like. Occasionally, I guess, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages or intracranial catastrophes. Um, but I think the ones in, in, in hospital historically have been the result of, of periods of protracted clinical deterioration. A lot of cardiac arrests studies in the 80s and 90s of the last century found that um, many of them were preceded by signs of physiological instability. So they weren't sudden and they weren't unexpected. Um, and again, that's probably why historically the outcomes have been so poor that they represent the end result of progressive clinical deterioration. Now, this interview really originates from a, a prospective um, observational study of ward patients who had in-hospital cardiac arrest that you performed and published just recently. What was the impetus for doing this study, Daryl? Um, so I'm interested in cardiac arrests in hospital for, for multiple reasons, mostly from the perspective of rapid response systems, but also anecdotally I've noticed that um, despite high, what appears to be high quality CPR, patients don't always have good outcomes. 
as an intensive care specialist, I'm interested in the emerging um, field and of um, eCPR, so ECMO for patients who have had cardiac arrests. So one of the re- one of the reasons we wanted to do a contemporaneous study was to look at approximately how many patients that might be applicable to, um, because as as I said. Despite good CPR, even if the arrest is witnessed, the outcome's not necessarily always favourable. Um, so I think we need to start thinking about alternative strategies um, to what we've been doing essentially since 1960 uh, in the last century. So tell us a little bit about the um, the study that you performed. Uh, so it was prospective, as you said. Um, we did it in seven hospitals and all of those had mature rapid response systems. Um, most of them were in Victoria, but there was a, a couple um, from interstate as well. Uh, and we found um, that there are 159 in-hospital cardiac arrests um, in 152 patients. So some of them, some of the patients had more than one cardiac arrest. They weren't young. These patients, the median age was 71 years, uh, and a quarter of them were more than 81 years old. But having said that, I guess a quarter of them were less than 61 years old Um, and they were mostly from home uh, and they mostly didn't have limitations of medical treatment um, at at, um, certainly before the arrest. Certainly they weren't documented um, anyway. Um, The surprising thing, Todd, I guess, was that um, a substantial proportion didn't come in with cardiovascular-related diagnoses. So we got the site investigators to characterise the type of admission and we characterise it based on the system, the body system associated with the admission diagnosis and only 40% of them had a cardiovascular related admission. The second commonest was actually gastrointestinal um, which was a little bit surprising Um, and we also, but we did find, sorry, that a a large proportion of them did have um, cardiovascular risk factors So about a quarter had a previous history of myocardial infarction, about one third had congestive heart failure, and they're all also, you know, um, presence of diabetes and peripheral and cerebrovascular disease and renal impairment. So um, they, although they came from home, uh, they were relatively elderly and a substantial proportion had um, a significant cardiovascular burden of, of chronic disease even though they um, didn't present with a primary cardiac pathology. Daryl, one of the aspects that you looked at during the study, I think, was the conduction of the arrest itself. What did you find that was in any way different to, to what we would expect from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? So you're right. One of the things I was interested in was what medications and what treatments are actually given during the arrest and and also subsequently the critical care intensive care treatment because um, looking through literature that's relatively underdocumented. And so we looked at simple things as to um, whether it occurred on the week day or a weekend, so about three quarters were on the on a weekday. Um, not surprisingly to me at least, the vast majority were not shockable rhythms, but it was only about two thirds. So our previous studies have said uh, suggested more than at least eighty percent of initial rhythms were unshockable. Um, a, a very large proportion of the arrests were witnessed. So three quarters of the arrests were witnessed. Um, and I think that's because 
uh, a lot of people are around, there's a lot more surveillance of people. Um, only 40% of the patients were actually on a, on a monitor, on some sort of telemetry or continuous ECG monitoring. So there was a lot more patients had a witness arrest than um, actually had uh, um, monitoring on. Not surprisingly, adrenaline was the commonest um, medication given. So roughly two-thirds were not witnessed, roughly two-thirds got adrenaline. And things like amiodarone and atropine and bicarbonate, consistent with guidelines, were relatively infrequently given. So I think amiodarone was the second commonest drug given, maybe atropine as well. They were sort of about 12 13%. Um, and only about a third of patients actually got a defibrillation at any one time, um, consistent with the fact that the vast majority of the, of the um, initial rhythms were not shockable. Um, and so surprisingly, that's one of the... This is one of the few studies where that level of treatment's actually been evaluated, um, despite the simplicity of what we do uh, in our BLS and ALS training. Um, so that was one of the aims of the study. What about the outcomes of these patients? As we, we talked about at the start, the, the traditional perspective of this is that in hospital cardiac arrest carries quite a, a nasty outcome. Um, what did you find in your study? So usually we talk about the return of spontaneous circulation, so whether they survive the initial arrest, because traditionally it's about 50% and then 50%. So 50% of patients will get return of circulation and then about half of them will actually survive to hospital discharge. We found that about a third of patients we couldn't resuscitate, so that's a bit better than traditional studies. So two-thirds were resuscitated. One of the surprising things was that um, 30 of the 104 patients that we could resuscitate remained on the ward. Um, they had appeared to have relatively short durations of CPR and the majority of them actually survived in hospital. So um, I think that one of the things we're witnessing is that patients are receiving CPR without pulse checks. That's sort of in association with the change of the ARC recommendations. So some of these patients might have been... Um, unresponsive and not breathing, but they may have actually had some sort of an assemblance of, a, of, a, of a, um, an output. They may have not completely lost output. We also found that of the people who survived, um, three quarters of them roughly went to intensive care afterwards. So roughly half of all the initial cardiac arrest survivors uh, of the initial of the patients who had a cardiac arrest went to intensive care um, after, and some of them had multiple um, admissions to the intensive care as well. Um, and, and not surprisingly, once you got to ICU, you really had a lot of um, very intensive treatment, and it was often for a protracted period. Um, so about 70% got noradrenaline, um, more than a third got adrenaline. Um, other inotropes such as milrinone and dibutamine were administered in, in about 15%. Um, one in 10 patients was treated with ECMO. 80% um, got invasive ventilation. About one in five got um, non-invasive ventilation and, and almost one in three needed renal replacement therapy. So the consequences of these arrests for patients who um, survive, the initial um, arrest is, is quite dramatic. Um, they have very intensive Intent, uh, critical care treatments, and it's often protracted. So the, the inotrope infusions were often for 41 hours. Um, the, the meeting was 41 hours. So 
um, very sick group um, needing a lot of treatment afterwards. But what we did find, Todd, was that um, we had a 40% survival rate, which is one of the higher survival rates um, in published literature, um, and a quarter of all the patients were discharged to home. Uh, so that's you know probably more than two-thirds of the survivors. The others went to hostels or nursing home, and a small spattering went to either another hospital or rehabilitation. So I guess to, to summarise, um, about two-thirds were male, about two-thirds had a non-witnessed arrest, about two-thirds got adrenaline, and about two-thirds died, sort of a very rough estimate if you're talking about fractions. So... Um, that's, I guess, the sort of overall summary of the study. And one of the, the striking features was that it appears that there's a, a fewer number of patients who are suffering in hospital cardiac arrest over time. And it does raise the question of whether the rapid response team has influenced that statistic. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, so I don't think we can conclude that from this study, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I guess there's now four systematic reviews that suggests that the introduction of a rapid response system is associated with reductions in cardiac arrests. The vast majority of studies that are positive are before and after studies, so it's often difficult to tease that out. And even if it, and, and if it is, uh, the, is, is factual that the introduction of a rapid response system reduces cardiac arrests, it doesn't really tell us the mechanism. So it could be that we're detecting patients earlier and preventing physiological deterioration to the point of arrest, or it could be that the rapid response team's making patients not for resuscitation and implementing limits of treatment so the patient never suffers an arrest where they get CPR. But in terms of answering your question, um, your other question, yes, um, this study suggested that the frequency of in-hospital cardiac arrest was actually much lower than other studies. I guess this is a, a bit of a biased study in that the seven hospitals that were participating all volunteered to be in the hospital, uh, to be in the study, sorry. They all have mature um, rapid response systems and they had a very large number of calls. So the one thing we haven't mentioned is that the total number of rapid response team calls was about 16,000 in seven hospitals over probably less than a year overall. Not every hospital participated for a year. The median participation time was nine months. So if, if you equate that out, it's roughly, what, a, a quarter or a third more. So you're looking at 20,000 met calls or rapid response team calls in seven hospitals over a year. So these are not, these are hospitals with very mature, very active rapid response systems. But what we did find that the frequency of in-hospital cardiac arrest was about 0.6 per thousand, um, and it equated to roughly one cardiac arrest per fortnight per hospital, um, if that makes sense, so roughly two a month. Daryl, just speculating for a moment, if if the rapid response um, team or, or that philosophy is reducing the number of um, cardiac arrests, what do you think the mechanisms might be? Um, whereabouts do you think that the survivors are going? Is it that we are uh, drawing limitations on, on the care of patients earlier or are we picking up disease earlier and preventing it from deteriorating into cardiac arrest? Where do you think that the major impact might be? I think it's probably a combination of both. I think, and the other thing that's been happening since 2000 when 
rapid response systems starting to get implemented was that the overall implementation of goals of care in hospitals probably improved. Um, and also, um, uh, you know, discussions about advanced care planning has also improved. Um, but to answer your question, we know that um, a third of rapid response system calls are associated with um, the end-of-life care issues and about one in ten have a new limitation of treatment implemented after the call. Um, but I think that there's probably at least some of the cardiac arrests are, um, are prevented by uh, the actual MET coming and intervening and either stopping deterioration or transferring the patient to the intensive care unit. One of the things we'll be looking for in this study, we've actually collected whether the patient had a rapid response team call in the prior 24 hours and whether the patient actually triggered or breached rapid response team criteria. Um, and we've also looked at um, the worst bicarbonate, the worst potassium levels um, in the prior 24 hours to see if there were biochemical or physiological warning signs. So um, we'll be able to get an idea of how many additional cardiac arrests might be preventable, even in these hospitals where the frequency seemed to be very, very low. As the background disease in the community changes and the, the nature of in-hospital uh, patient uh, work changes, um, do you think that it's likely that the pattern of in-hospital cardiac arrest will change over time as well? Uh, that's a very good question. I guess it depends on what the the hospital staff's response is. Todd, I think that um, in theory we could potentially be doing CPR on older patients with more comorbidity. I mean, these patients had a lot of comorbidity. Um, however, I think that I'm optimistic that concurrently will be, there's a huge drive now for things like um, clinician-assisted dying. So at one end of the spectrum, we've got um, discussions about essentially euthanasia for people who are uh, got a life-limiting illness. I think at the other end of the spectrum, we need to be start talking to families um, either before or shortly after hospital admission to talk about what their goals of care are for that admission. And um, given the findings and the outcomes of patients who get CPR, particularly those who are elderly, particularly those with comorbidities, we should really be um, contemplating um, in which patients we should be doing CPR. Um, there are some people advocating that it should almost be an opt-in um, approach and that it's a medical procedure and that patients should actually almost require consent um, to receive CPR. I mean, that's one extreme. But I think we really need to start thinking about the patients in whom we should be providing um, cardiac life support for. Daryl, looking to the future for just a moment, what do you see as the research priorities in this area over the next decade? So in this particular study, in the near future, we'll be looking, as I've said, um, what the functional outcomes are of these patients because um, we have shown that about 40% of them uh, survive to hospital discharge, but we don't know how well those patients survive um, and so we have a, a PhD student, Gemma Pound, who's um, following up these patients in six and 12 months to assess their functional outcomes. And that, that will be very interesting um, data. We're also looking, as I've alluded to, um, how many of these patients had warning signs in the 24 hours prior to their cardiac arrest to see how many of them might have been preventable. 
and concurrent with that, we're looking at which of the patients when did not have a good functional status at admission, and particularly in the elderly patients with multiple comorbidities, whether we can look at seeing are there associations with, or for want of a better word, predictors of, um, very poor outcomes of patients who have cardiac arrests, um, to see if we can provide some guidance as to in which patients it's not appropriate to do um, CPR. Um, but I guess finally, as an intensivist, I mean, I'm in, interested in the broader concept of hospital medicine and also the continuum of, of clinical deterioration to the point it needs ICU. But as an intensivist, I'm also interested in if CPR is not overall an effective treatment, in which patients should we be deploying eCPR? Because um, I guess it's like CPR. Um, technically, it might be possible to do it, but I guess we should be asking um, in which patients is it appropriate um, for 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 one of a better one of a better term. And so, hopefully, we're going to be looking at in the future in this cohort the patients that were less than seventy that didn't have major comorbidities to see what their trajectory and outcome was. Because if if a significant proportion of them don't do well we might be thinking about, well, how many of these patients might have been appropriate for eCPR? Because um, it's really only done in highly specialised ECMO centres at the moment. Um, and I'm interested in how many patients it might be applicable for um, outside of those centres. Daryl Jones, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me today. For other great podcasts just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.